I want to focus your attention this morning on John chapter 8. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. I'm going to read down through verse 11. This is that well-known passage in the Gospel of John where the scribes and the Pharisees drag a woman caught in adultery to Jesus to see what he'll do about it. Beginning in verse 2, John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. Early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, of, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is part three in a series that I've entitled Irreligious. And I've said the last two weeks that religion is the false idea that we have to do certain things and become a certain way in order for God to love us. That we have to get right, get clean, and get busy if we ever hope to be on God's good side. Um, religion, in other words, and I've said this week after week, religion is all about earning and deserving and getting gold stars for good behavior. And that means that religion is ultimately not about God, as surprising as that is. It's about me. Religion's all about my behavior, my obedience, my faithfulness, my works, my improvement, my potential, and so on and so forth. Well, if that's what religion is, then the gospel is not religious. In fact, the gospel absolutely contradicts religion. The gospel is not a message about you and what you need to do for God. It's a message about God and what he's done for you. Robert Capon, my favorite writer, puts it this way. Jesus came to call sinners, not the pseudo-righteous, he came to raise the dead, not to buy drinks for the well-behaved. He's right. So throughout this series, I've been trying to distinguish Christianity in general and the gospel in particular from religion. And I mentioned in week one that the Bible uses the word religion in both a positive way and in a negative way. And for the purposes of this series, I'm using it exclusively in a negative way. So if religion is all about me and what I need to do to get right and stay right with God, then there was no one more anti-religious in human history than Jesus. No one. Um, and in this story, again, we see a confrontation between Jesus and religion. We see a conflict taking place between the gospel 
and religion. The religious leaders, as I just read, um, in Jesus' day were always trying to trap him. Always. The fact that he hung out with the kinds of people he hung out with drove them nuts. According to them, Jesus went to all the wrong places, he said all the wrong things, and he hung out with all the wrong people all the time. He was upending their establishment that they had worked so hard to build and to protect. They were convinced that Jesus was a fraud because no self-respecting man of God would ever embrace the kind of refuse that Jesus embraced, ever. No self-respecting man of God would ever embrace the kind of filth that Jesus embraced. He was constantly being accused of lessening God's law, lowering God's standard, sweeping God's rules and regulations under the rug, constantly being accused of that by the religious people in his day. So here in this episode... They drag a woman caught in adultery to Jesus, and they make a statement in the form of a question in verses 4 and 5. I just read it. Uh, Teacher, we caught this woman in adultery. The law of Moses said that we should stone her. What do you say? Trying to pit Jesus against Moses, against God's law. And their motivation is exposed in verse 6. They're not asking a question because they genuinely want an answer. They weren't really looking for an answer. They were making an accusation against Jesus. They were trying to trap him. They were trying to trick him. Um, It says in verse 6, very plainly, just so that we're not confused as to why they were asking this. This they said to test him that they might have some charges to bring against him. That's the whole reason they did this and asked the question that they asked. Um, In the second part of verse 6, Jesus, it says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. We're going to get back to that in a second. Um, It doesn't tell us what he wrote, but it does tell us what he said. After writing on the ground in verse 6, he says in verse 7, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Okay. Now, this next part, to me, uh, is the most scandalous by far. This is a pretty well-known passage. Uh, People quote this kind of thing all the time, whether you grew up in church or didn't grow up in church, whether you are a Christian or don't claim to be a Christian. This whole idea of you who are without sin cast the first stone is something we've heard for a long time, especially in the face of people who are leveling accusations or making judgments when they know they're no better. Um, But notice here, this part which I've been thinking about ever since last Sunday's sermon on Zacchaeus. I've been really pondering this. If I could say that this has been the most dominant thought in my mind over the course of this week, it would not be an overstatement. Um, Notice, Jesus doesn't defend this woman, okay? Uh, He doesn't say she's not guilty of adultery. He doesn't say that. He doesn't look at these religious leaders and say, guys, just, I mean, come on, cut her some slack, you know? I mean, she's had a hard week, you know? I mean, just give her a break. He doesn't say that. Like the prostitute in the sermon two weeks ago in Zacchaeus last week, these people are guilty of what they are being accused of. 
Okay, the accusations against them are not false. They're true. This woman is guilty of breaking God's law. This woman is guilty of adultery. This woman is guilty of sexual sin. She is guilty as charged. Now, what's scandalous about this is we, reading this story, tend to look at this woman with sympathy, and we tend to look at these religious leaders with disdain. They're so mean, they're so cruel, they're so judgmental and accusatory. And we look at this poor woman as she is portrayed here. If you saw The Passion of the Christ or any of the other Jesus movies that came out over the last 30 years or so that depict this scene, uh, this scene in the movies generates a lot of sympathy and empathy for this woman, okay? Um, But she was far from deserving of our sympathy, okay? Um, What if this was your wife? What if it was your mother? What if it was your husband's lover or your son's wife? Okay, it gives you a little bit of a different perspective when you put yourself in the story and go, what if this was, what if this was my wife here? Um, What if this was my husband's lover here? What if this was my son's wife? Um, I mean, what then? See, it would be one thing if Jesus embraced the falsely accused. That's not scandalous, okay? I mean, anybody who's falsely accused generates some level of sympathy, even empathy from us, because they're being unjustly accused. Um, What is scandalous is that Jesus embraced the truly accused, the justly accused, okay? That's the scandal. Um, what scandalizes religious people is not who God leaves out, but who God lets in. That's the scandal, okay? Because depending on where you're sitting at the table, this woman deserves every stone that's about to get thrown at her, okay? If this is your husband's lover, you want her to be stoned. Okay? If, this is, if this is your wife, you want her to be stoned. If this kind of betrayal was in your home, in your face, happening to someone you loved or happening to you, uh, the sympathy would sort of go away. It's one thing, as I said, for Jesus to embrace and to love uh, the falsely accused. That is not a scandal. I mean, that's... That's par for the course. That's normal. That's right. That's typical. What is scandalous is that Jesus embraced the justly accused. The prostitute two weeks ago, Zacchaeus last week, and this woman who is guilty this week. Um, Jesus loves and embraces those who are guilty. He meets our guilt with his grace 10 times out of 10. You see, the problem with the religious people here was not that they said she was guilty. That's not the problem. That's not the issue here. Okay? They were right about that. The problem was that they thought they were innocent. That was the issue. That's where the confrontation between Jesus and, the God and religion happens right here. It's not in saying, just leave this woman alone. No, she deserves what the law said she deserves. The problem was not that. The problem was that they thought they didn't deserve it. 
they thought they were innocent. So Jesus' response is intended to show them that they're as guilty as she is. That's his response. Whatever he wrote in the sand, what he said in saying, you who are without sin, uh, who haven't sinned, you be the first to throw a stone at her. Everything that he said in that moment and whatever he wrote in that moment was intended to show them that they are as guilty as she is. Well, let's look at this mysterious writing on the ground for a second. First of all, no one really knows what he wrote, okay? People can speculate all day long. People have speculated for a long, long time. No one really knows. I suppose that if God wanted us to know exactly what Jesus wrote, he would have said it, okay? So the fact that he didn't say it tells us that it's not primarily God's concern that we know exactly what Jesus wrote. But this is what's interesting, okay? There are two places in the Bible where God writes something with his finger. Only two places, This is the third place. There's only two places, and both are in the Old Testament. The first is the Ten Commandments. We're told in Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, that God wrote the law on the two tablets with his finger and gave them to Moses, the Ten Commandments. He gave gave Moses and his people the law by writing with his finger on the two tablets of stone. Uh, The second place where God um, writes with his finger, is in Daniel chapter 5. Okay, now this is kind of an obscure story, so let me kind of tell you what it's about. Um, In Daniel chapter 5, the Babylonian king Belshazzar, which was also the name of a great Pyrenees that my mother had when she was growing up for some reason, I don't know why, because this guy was apparently a jerk, so why would they name their dog this, but whatever. Um, So, in Daniel chapter 5, the Babylonian king Belshazzar is having a huge party. And it says in verse 4, at this party, they were praising the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron and wood and stone. And during this bash, this drunken bash, uh, where they're, you know, praising all of these false gods, a hand appears out of nowhere and begins writing on the wall. Um... And Daniel, who was, in, who he was an Israelite who was enslaved by the Babylonians, but who had a lot of respect from the Babylonians because he was clearly a wise man, was summoned to come in. Maybe Daniel can interpret for us whatever this hand is saying. What is this phrase that was just written on the wall? So they summon Daniel in. He comes in. He translates for them what it says, and it says this. Many, many tekel Paris. Well, what does that mean? Um, many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. It's the first thing. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. This is the message God wants to send to King Belshazzar. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Three words of judgment. Of law. God not only gives the law in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 5, but he writes with his finger law on this wall. A word, three words to be exact, of judgment. So why, okay, why is that important for this account in John chapter 8? Because both times God wrote with his finger in the Bible, It was law. And the law is always God's way of exposing us. 
of showing us that we're no better than the worst person we can think of. We looked at that uh, in the whole Unmasked series when we looked at the Ten Commandments, that uh, God's law judges all of us, all of us. God's law uh, informs us all that we have all fallen short of God's glory, that no one is perfect, um, that we are all unrighteous, that nobody is good but God. And so the other two times that God writes with his finger in the Bible, he writes a word of judgment, a word of accusation, a word of law. Well, here, even though we can't say for sure what Jesus wrote, it is interesting that it specifies that he got down on the ground and wrote with his finger. God, again, is writing with his finger for the third time. Um, And it's clear that his writing and his words exposed the sinfulness of those who accused the woman. Now, I like to speculate, like everybody else, about what he may have wrote. And maybe he wrote something like this. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery. Maybe he wrote that. Maybe he just reiterated something he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he wanted to remind these Pharisees that Keeping God's law is not just a matter of outward conduct, but inward disposition. That God doesn't simply demand perfection on the outside. He demands perfection on the inside. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Maybe he wanted to remind them that they are falling short just like she is. That while she's guilty, they're not innocent. They're guilty too. Well, whatever he wrote had the effect of causing them to drop their stones and walk away, okay? They didn't stone her. By him saying what he said, you who are without sin, throw the first stone at her, and writing whatever he did, they got the message. They realized that they were not qualified to level any judgment against this woman, not because she wasn't deserving of judgment, but because they were also. Um, You see, religion operates with an us versus them mentality. We are better than them. We are more spiritual than them. We are more deserving than them. We are more important than them. We are more right than them. That's the way religion operates. This is why religion is allergic to grace. Because grace wrecks, dismantles hierarchy. Dismantles it. Um, it eviscerates, grace eviscerates the us versus them mentality and puts us all, regardless of rank or status, whether you're a Pharisee or a prostitute, it puts us all on the same level playing field of need. Well, to anybody who loves and who loves to live by the us versus them mentality and this hierarchy of we are better than them kind of mentality, grace is the worst thing that could happen to a paradigm like that. Um, you see, we, we tend to think that what gets in the way of knowing God is our badness. But it's not. It's our goodness. That's what actually gets in the way of our knowing God. Um, It's not our unrighteousness that keeps us from God. It's our self-righteousness that keeps us from God. I mean, we see that over and over um, throughout the Gospels and throughout the Bible. What Jesus said and whatever Jesus wrote 
exposed them. And every one of them walked away one by one. And I love the little seemingly throwaway line there, which says, and beginning with the oldest, they walked away. Well, why is that in there? I mean, what's the purpose of that? I can't be certain, but I'm pretty sure the reason is because older people tend to be more realistic. You know, younger people tend to be more idealistic. And so here, there was probably a mixed group. Clearly, there was a mixed group because it says starting with the oldest. So clearly, there were older ones and younger ones. And whatever Jesus, when Jesus said what he said and whatever he wrote, the older ones were the first to go, he got me. I'm out. Okay. I mean, I, I, the younger ones were like, now, hold on a second. I may have a lifeline here, you know. Um, but older people tend to be more realistic about themselves. And um, younger people tend to be more idealistic because if you live long enough, you begin to realize uh, you're not as good as you thought you were, you know? The longer you live as a broken person in a broken world with other broken people, uh, your idealism begins to wane, idealism about yourself. Um, The... The greatest, in my opinion, and this is probably true for you too, one of the greatest tragedies is when, as people get older, they become more self-righteous, you know? They think they're better than they were before. They're more deserving than they were before. Um, But what we discover in this case, even, is that the older ones were like, okay, I I don't have a leg to stand on here. Uh, Given what he just said, and given what he just wrote, I, I'm, I, I'm out. I can't do it. Um, my friend David Zoll says it this way. Transformation doesn't have the same appeal to a 70-year-old as to a 30-year-old. Mercy does. <laughs> you know, being right oftentimes is not as attractive to an 80-year-old as it is a 20-year-old. Mercy does, because the longer you live in this world and the more you suffer and the more you lose and the more you inflict suffering on others, the more you realize, if grace and mercy isn't my only hope, I'm done. Um, So after all the religious leaders walk away, flattened by God's law, Jesus speaks a word of deliverance to this guilty woman. And he says in verse 10, um, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Well, then neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, let me just say something quick about that, go and sin no more. Um, some people have interpreted that to mean go and be flawless. Go and be perfect. Because I'm about to do something really nice for you here, okay? I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to throw a stone at you. But in order for you to guarantee that I will never condemn you, you have to go and sin no more. Because the moment you screw up again, I'm hurling a boulder at your head, okay? That's, That's not what's going on here. Um, he's not saying go and be perfect. He's saying leave this self-destructive life of adultery. Just leave it because the more you do it, the more hurt you're going to cause yourself and others. Um, 
for your sake and for the freedom that I have purchased for you. Don't live like that anymore. Uh, someone said, if, asked me a while back, I mean, I get this question often, but it's very specifically, I remember this person asking me in a group setting, it was a, it, I had finished speaking and I opened it up for some Q&A and this person said, if grace is everything you say it is, uh, and God's love truly is unconditional, um, then why, why wouldn't we just sin and do all the stuff we want to do? And I just looked and said, because it's stupid. <laughs> I mean, if you want to ruin your life, dude, do it, okay? I mean, it, when our sin does not block God's love for us. God's love for us was firmly secured by what Jesus has done, not based on what we do or fail to do, okay? So your relationship with God is intact, but the horizontal consequences of stupid decisions still happen. Okay, I was telling someone the other day, um, you know, you can drive, uh, you can talk, you can, well, I use two examples. I'll use this one first. You can talk bad about your boss all day long to every employee that will listen. And you will not sacrifice one ounce of God's love for you. But you may lose your job, okay? You can drive 120 miles an hour from here to Fort Lauderdale, which I do twice a week, okay? Without sacrificing one ounce of God's love for you. But you may lose your license, okay? So no vertical condemnation does not mean no horizontal consequences, all right? Um, so... What he, that's important for us to understand here in this passage because when he says go and sin no more, he's not adding a string. He's not attaching a string to this conditional promise of his. Well, what is he doing? Um, the, the order of Jesus' wording here is crucial. Crucial. And it's the difference between Christianity and religion. Okay, he doesn't say, if you go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. He doesn't say that. That's not the order. He says, I do not condemn you, full stop, go and sin no more. He's not, uh, he does not make his love, in other words, conditional on her behavior. He doesn't say, go sin no more and check back with me in six months. And if you've been good, and I know, because I'm Jesus, and I can see everything, if you've been good, then I won't condemn you. Go prove yourself worthy of my love, and if you prove yourself worthy, then I will love you. Doesn't say that. That's religion. That's not Christianity. No. Jesus creates new life in her by loving her unconditionally with no strings attached. The mistake religion makes when it comes to God, is to think that obedience precedes acceptance. That's the, that's the big issue with religion. God will love me if I'm good. God will love me if I do what's right. God will love me if I obey, and so on and so forth. In religion, you have to prove you're worthy of forgiveness before you're forgiven. You have to perform well to be accepted. You have to become lovely in order to be loved. It's a conditional framework. Religion is a conditional framework. Christianity is an unconditional framework. But Jesus 
turns things upside down and reverses the order. Only in Christianity does the verdict not guilty come before a changed life. Okay? It's not change your life and then receive the not guilty verdict. It's receive the not guilty verdict, and that in and of itself carries the power to change your life. Um, so, um, you know, when, when I, we were, the men and I were talking on, I think it was this Wednesday night, maybe it was last Wednesday night or the week, Wednesday before that, but I think it was this Wednesday night, we were talking about Romans chapter 6, where after two chapters, Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul in those two chapters, writes eloquently and profoundly about the radical nature of the gospel, God's work in Jesus for sinners like you and me, okay? Uh, And he dives into deep theological waters when it comes to the gospel in those chapters. And then he gets to chapter 6 and he anticipates this question. He knows what the people who have just heard him preach the gospel are going to say. Well, if that's true, Paul, then why shouldn't we go on sinning so that grace may abound? You know, you've just finished saying that where there is a lot of sin, there is even more grace. So if we want more grace, shouldn't we sin more? Okay. And Paul answers that question profoundly. He basically says, If that's the first question that comes to mind, if that's the first thought that comes to your mind in light of what I just told you about the radicality of God's love, it means you didn't hear a word I said. Because when someone is gripped and grasped by the unconditionality of God's love and grace and mercy for them in the face of their undeservedness, That doesn't make them want to go out and sin more. It makes them want to go out and sin less. I mean, I've used this illustration before. If I'm being short and snippy with my wife, and rather than her being short and snippy back, she sort of calms me down and looks at me in the eyes and says, Honey, I don't know what's going on with you or what kind of day you had. I just want you to know that I love you come hell or high water. That's not going to make me want to continue being mean. That's going to make me feel bad for being mean and make me say, honey, I am sorry. It's going to make me want to love her more. Okay. So this idea that grace and unconditional love produces serial killers is ridiculous. It doesn't. (laughs) In fact, it's the only catalyst to real change. Fear and guilt do not produce real heart change. They can't. They can't. First John tells us, we love him. Well, how did that happen? Because we, because he first loved us. Love, not law, produces love. Okay. Um, so Jesus turns things upside down, reverses the order and says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Now, if you continue sleeping around and, you know, doing this, uh, I, I've already pronounced the not guilty verdict on you because of my work, not yours. But you're going to make your life so much harder and you're going to live with guilt and shame and sadness and you're going to hurt the people you love and you're just, it's just, your life's going to be a mess. Why do you want to live like a slave when you're free? When you're free. Well, this is what 
you know, religion is scared of. You can't distribute grace and forgiveness without conditions or people will get out of control. Okay? Religion is all about control. It is all about one thing and one thing only, behavior modification. That's it. Um, because the underlying fear is that unconditional love will lead to bad behavior. But I, I, like I said a minute ago, I've never met one person who is truly grasped by God's grace and forgiveness that they then immediately say, this is awesome. Now I can go do whatever bad stuff I want and I get off scot-free. I love this deal. I've never met somebody who says that. And anybody who does say that proves that they don't get it. As the last three weeks have shown, first with the prostitute, then with Zacchaeus, and here in this story, grace creates a longing for good, not a lust for bad. Okay? Um, it's not, grace is not the obstacle to change. It's the catalyst for change, the only catalyst. Um, well, I want to keep going on and on and on. There's a part back on the second page of my notes that I want to go back to, but I'm going to spare you. Um, so let me just, let me conclude with this. Um, you and I are, in a sense, like the scribes and Pharisees in this story, uh, because we tend to think that other people are worse than we are, that we tend to uh, point out the speck in other people's eyes while ignoring the log in our own. Uh, we tend to be bothered much more by the sins of other people than we are our own sins. Uh, so in that sense, we too need to hear God's law so that we will be flattened and humbled and reminded that we're no better than the worst person we know. But in the truest sense, we're like the adulterous woman. Every single one of us is caught in the act. God's law exposes the unfaithfulness of us all. All of us. And though no one on earth is qualified to throw the first stone, God can. And God did. The wonder of all wonders is that the stone of condemnation that we deserved was hurled by the Father onto the Son at the cross. So we sing and we sing with tremendous enthusiasm. There on the cross, your burden bearing, thorns on his brow, your Savior is wearing. Never again your sin need appall. You have been pardoned once and for all. The lawmaker, as you've heard me say before, became the lawkeeper and died for us, the lawbreakers. So a stone was thrown. And God, the only one qualified, is the one who threw it. But he didn't throw it on us. He threw it on Jesus for us. Remember I told you a handful of times during the last series that you can summarize Christianity with two words, for you, the substitutionary work of Jesus is the warp and woof of our faith. It is not your transformation. It's not how much you improve over the years. It's not how good you become 
or how well you fight sin, that is not the foundation of the Christian faith. The foundation of the Christian faith is not your transformation. It is Christ's substitution, full stop. In my place condemned, he stood and sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Um, Robert Capon, again, I found this quote last night as I was getting ready to go to bed. I'm like, I've got to include it. Um, so good. He says, the law of God condemns us all until grace comes and liberates us from its curse without a single condition attached. No improvements demanded, no promises extorted, just the extravagant, outrageous, hilarious absurdity of free forgiveness and dying love. That's the gospel. And this is why, as long as I'm here, we will always be a church that reminds people that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Always. I'm not here to tell you meticulously how to live, what to watch, what not to watch, whether you should discipline your kids or not. If so, how? I, that's not, I'm not your mother, okay? Uh, you, figure, you guys figure that stuff out. God can help you with that. I'm here to do one thing, <laughs> and that is to remind you week after week after week after week that it is finished. We, everywhere else in the world, no matter where you go, no matter where you go, no matter what you hear, you are going to hear in either an explicit way or at the very least implied, you're going to hear, just do it. Just do it. Do more. Try harder. Get better. Climb higher. Clean up. That's what you're going to hear. Not here. The church, the, you, you need, we all need one place for one hour a week. One hour a week to be reminded that it is finished. Because we're not going to get it anywhere else. Um, and so I, we will always, always be a church that reminds people that God has forgiven the sins of our yesterdays and our todays and our tomorrows. And like I said in my prayer earlier, that the sins we can't forget, God doesn't remember. We will never stop being a church that reminds people that while the accuser may roar of sins that I have done, I know them well and thousands more, my God, he knoweth none. We'll never stop reminding people of that. We will always, always be a church that reminds people of the seemingly too good to be true nature of grace that inseparably connects us to the God of repeat offenders. Constantly. Um, a church that reminds guilty people that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that nothing can separate us from God's love because God's love for you is not dependent on you. God's love for you is dependent on what Jesus has done for you and he has announced over you it is finished. Let's pray together.